Hello. No, this isn't another edition of Feedback on Radio 4, though this is me, Roger Bolton, but I'm adapting to the changing media landscape, recording my very first podcast, free of the constraints of broadcasting on the BBC, with a few more opinions, and casting my net a little bit wider to encompass the whole of the BBC, iPlayer included. We're feeling our way in this podcasting world, but we've decided there'll be no plinky-plonky music to start off with. But we will still be giving you a taster of what is to come. So, as the BBC receives complaints about the lack of a Republican point of view during the coverage of the Queen's death, I'll be having tea with a group of neighbours to gauge their reactions. There will be, in the future, no doubt, there will be a referendum. Do we want to keep the Queen or not? But this wasn't the occasion for that. And I'll be talking to a former BBC Trust board member who was in charge of planning the coverage for a royal death 40 years ago. What plans were in place for the death of the Queen? Had no plans for her, and more to the point, it had no plans for the Queen Mother, who was then, by definition, it being 1985, she was 85 years old. I'll also be talking to Richard Eyre about the financial squeeze the BBC is experiencing and whether its services are already feeling the pinch. The BBC has been saying ever since I was a kid that it was strapped for cash. It is now visible. It is visible what's happening on screen, on radio and online. Well, I agree with that. As Audio UK has pointed out, that's the Radio and Podcast Producers Organisation, the last BBC Trust operating licence for Radio 4 required 600 hours of drama to be broadcast in 2016-17. The BBC's last annual plan, however, committed to just 300 hours of drama on Radio 4 in the year 2022-3. That's down by a half. It's no coincidence that drama is more expensive than chat. But first, the number of complaints the BBC received over its coverage of the Queen is far, far lower than those received during the time of the Duke of Edinburgh's death in April last year. The BBC heralded the fact that 32.5 million turned to the corporation's coverage of the state funeral of the Queen. But did the Beeb get the balance right? Were, for example, the views of Republicans sufficiently reflected? Or did the BBC become the RBC, the Royal Broadcasting Corporation? I headed off for a neighbourhood chat a few days after the funeral to find out what some members of the audience feel. It's only a few days since the Queen's funeral, but I think we're all rather emotional. My own feelings were very strange. I watched it all and found myself in tears without sometimes understanding quite why. Some other young people I noticed outside the window not being really interested at all. But I think the vast majority of people were just fascinated by it. And I want to find out what they thought of the BBC's coverage, as opposed to the magnificent display of the soldiers, sailors and others involved. Julia, can I ask you first, um, did you intend to watch all of the funeral and did you watch all of it? We watched the actual day of the funeral. We did start watching at about 11. Um, yes, we, wa- we were absolutely transfixed once it started. I mean, the coverage was extraordinary. I don't think we've ever seen anything like it in our lifetimes, at that scale of um, funeral and mocking things. What did you think of the coverage, or were you not even aware of the coverage? You were just consumed by the event. Well, in a way, I suppose one is consumed by the event, especially if you're watching it on television, because visually it's so gripping. But I felt that the coverage was fantastic. 
you know, very authoritative. I suppose a tiny, tiny thing. I would have loved... There were so many people from the Commonwealth, you know, and it would have been lovely, but a very difficult job for the presenters if they could have said, oh, yes, that group are from where, you know... They did identify the Canadian Mounties, but there were other groups from the other Commonwealth countries, and I was thinking, oh, who are they? And But I understand that because... You couldn't do that because there were presenters in different places and different views were coming up. It would have been very difficult for them to do that. Can I come on to Philip? Um, There was a lot of coverage. And compared, say, to the coverage of the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, there were very few complaints on the whole with the BBC. But some people did think it was pretty repetitive and that it wasn't necessary to perhaps clear the schedules as much as they did do. Do you agree with that? Yes, only from the point of the repetition because i have to confess we watched so much um uh, the the repetition was annoying and when you'd got to tea time and then suddenly a special edition of the one show and you think what (laughs) i've been watching it all day Uh, but I, i did on the whole i did love it and I think the BBC had to do it, and I did. I think, on the whole, they did a fantastic job. Yeah, I, I think the funeral coverage was was good. I I was totally overwhelmed by since her death, the suffocating coverage, because and the repetition. I felt leading up to the funeral, it was totally disproportionate. The thing that also got us was the feeding frenzy on the queue. We got the notion of what people felt in the queue, but it was then, well, we got our correspondent at the rear of the queue, let's go to them, this is the person at the head of the queue, and they kept on asking the same question, why you're here? And people, you know, I respected why people were there, but they would say, well, I wanted to show my respect, I lost, I lost my grandmother last year. But they never let it go. They didn't give proportionality in terms of saying, yeah, we want to know why people are in the queue but not every moment of the day. We were so overwhelmed with the, the personal reflections and so on that I, I didn't get the balance. I mean, you only heard about what the new government might be doing the day after the funeral, whereas I think it was a pertinent issue to be discussing alongside all the emotion about the Queen. Now, what if I talk to you about radio's role in all of this? You could say, look, radio can't compete uh, because it's essentially a visual experience, and therefore radio should be providing a range of alternative listening uh, about other things. So if people want to escape, they should. Uh, Did you listen to any of the radio coverage? No, I didn't. I was glued to the (laughs) television from 10 o'clock in the morning, apart from having breaks for cooking, etc., absolutely glued because... I am of an age, 80, I remember her coronation and her death and what a wonderful queen she's been. And no amount of courage. The royal family looking, oh, they were wonderful. I do know how they feel. I felt as though I knew what they were feeling. Did you get your first television set for the coronation? I did, our family did. And I remember we had it in the front room. It was a 12-inch black and white set. And all our members, grandparents and others, came to it and sat in the front room and it was a yeah. defining moment for people born when I was just yeah. after the war. 
My father, I think, had a, a 10-inch television with a, a screen that went over the top to make it bigger. Oh, <laughs> we had one of those big magnifying glass, and yeah, the problem is, right. if you look through it head-on, it's all right. Yeah. But if you look from the sides, it uh, magnified people's noses. Yeah. <laughs> and I, being a small kid, was on the side, yeah. so all I saw were these big noses. So I always thought any member of the royal family, to be a member of the royal family, had to have a big nose. <laughs> <laughs> The other criticism, of course, which comes across is that actually what we witnessed was the Royal Broadcasting Corporation, that there's the BBC that ought to represent the whole of the country, and uh, there's a minority, and it may be as much as 20% of people who are Republicans, who would be sad, perhaps, at the death of the Queen, but don't think the BBC should turn into effectively a propaganda instrument for the royal family, which some people think they they were in danger of becoming. Julie, you would have had a trouble finding the Republican views represented in the BBC's coverage, wouldn't you? The trouble is, I can't remember, because there's been so much intensity of cover, that I can't remember if it was radio or television. But I do remember hearing interviews with people, it might have been radio, actually, who were Republicans, because I remember thinking, oh, this sounds a surprising time to be airing that. It seems a slightly churlish time for people to be talking about that, because... Whether you're Republican or not, most people do have huge respect for the Queen, especially in the light of our various political things. You know, integrity is the word we all associate with her. But, I mean, let me get a sense overall. Mark's out of ten for BBC coverage. What would you give them? Ten? Ten, yeah. Got two. Seven. No, you've got to give ten. them ten. Right, well, if there are four of you and it adds up to 47, let me do the maths very quickly. <laughs> OK, it's over nine out of ten anyway as an average. Well, thank you very much. So, Jack, um, you're just coming to the end of the period in the sixth form, about to leave school. After the Queen's death, did your friends ring each other up and say, isn't this terrible or whatever, or, or what? There was a bit of um, a variety between responses. Um, some of my friends would just say RIP in a group chat. Some friends made jokes about it. Generally, there was a bit of communication between some friends, but it was quite light-hearted. One of my other friends, also called Jack, is another royalist, so we talked about it a little bit, um, saying that it was sad, but that's the exception. You're a royalist, but you think you're an exception among your... Yes, definitely. It's me and that friend, and that's basically it. Everyone else is a Republican. And so when you're looking at the way your parents or and other people's grandparents indeed responded to all this, did you think, this is a bit strange? I think largely I was happy with it and I thought no this is good and I liked it at some points I felt like we responded maybe a bit too far I kind of felt like maybe we were idealizing this person a little bit too much so I feel like I have been affected by my friends I'm leaning a little bit towards republicanism more than my family is but I would say I'm still a royalist but do you think the BBC became the um so the royal broadcasting corporation uh, that just converted for the 10 days from between the announcement of the death to the funeral became essentially a public relations machine? I think it was. I think it did broadcast the royals during those 10 days a little bit too much. I would find myself, when going on to BBC News, just scrolling past the six, seven stories on um, the royal family when not really anything is to be said. I felt like the BBC ended up having to say, in a way, a lot of rubbish because they were forced to do wall-to-wall coverage and sometimes they didn't really have anything to say, so it made it a little bit not sincere enough because there was so much quantity, the quality wasn't exactly there. I mean, I'm talking to you as if you watch uh, television and listen to the radio, but actually your generation doesn't do either of those things, does it? No. The main 
experience I have of the BBC is through the BBC News app. I did watch the tribute to the Queen on the day that it was announced and I did watch the Queen's funeral on television, but that's it. But that was that almost a unique experience for you, sitting down and watching a television? Yes, quite unique. I feel like now uh, watching BBC Channel is only when the royals do something. Right. Well, that's pretty... Uh, that, um, I think, fits into the pattern that, uh, you know, BBC execs would tell you they're terrified that your generation just will not switch on. So that's why, obviously, they're doing podcasting and other things. But for the rest of us, the BBC is on these occasions the national broadcaster in radio and television. Does the national broadcaster exist for you? Yes, I see BBC as the national broadcaster and I, for some reason, have some sort of a loyalty to it. But yeah, the BBC is the news channel, is the broadcaster which I would turn to quite a lot, um, as opposed to any other UK broadcaster. Well, of course, living in this house, you get your TV for free, don't you? Can you conceive of a time, five years' time, you're living in your own flat, and somebody says, right, if you want to watch television, you've got to have a licence fee and pay it, and you have no choice. What would your reaction be to that? I would hope I'd be supportive of it, but I don't know yet. (laughs) I feel like things may change when I get older and I start having to pay expenses for a lot of stuff. But, I mean, the sense in which... If you don't use it, why should you pay for it? And essentially now, apart from the news service, you're saying to me, you don't really use the BBC, do you? And your friends don't. No. Well, I feel like I do use the BBC in that it is my main source of news. I do watch uh, programmes from it sometimes. But, yeah, apart from that, I do not use the BBC whatsoever. Well, we've just been listening to a predominantly royalist audience there of listeners. Uh, I'm now joined by Richard Eyre, a former member of the BBC Trust. And, of course, Richard, you have no views at all on the monarchy, have you? <laughs> I'm allowed to have views on the monarchy now as, a, as an individual and always had, but I was never allowed to express them. I'm basically a Republican, but have a considerable degree of respect for the way the late Queen discharged her frankly, uh, pretty odious as well as onerous duties. Well, now we know where you are. Tell me what you think we've just been listening over the last 10 days to the Royal Broadcasting Corporation as opposed to the British Broadcasting Corporation. I mean, some, one or two of our listeners, clearly think that if you're a Republican, you'd been effectively silenced for the last 10 days. Yeah, that's nonsense. I don't accept that point of view at all. I think the BBC is sometimes called by some of its opponents a state broadcaster. It's not the state broadcaster. It is, however, the nation's broadcaster, and it's very lucky to maintain that position. And if the death of the constitutional head of government, far less the constitutional head head of government for a record 70 years, dies, it seems to be entirely proper that the nation's broadcaster should give, if you like, disproportionate airtime to everything that Follows. I was very struck by the fact that when David Dimbleby did his three films about the crises in the BBC, David made the point that it, the BBC in some ways finds dealing with royalty the most difficult thing because on the one hand it's expected to be the national broadcaster on state occasions and with the royal family and whatever, and then on the other hand it's supposed to represent the nation and there is a significant minority who are Republican and at least they say... They didn't hear their voices over the last 10 days. It's not wholly true that they didn't hear their voices. There were certainly 
a number of voices that I heard on both BBC Radio and BBC Television expressing Republican sentiments from various parts of the Commonwealth, and it was a much-discussed question whether the death of the Queen would now encourage the Republican campaigns in a number of different Commonwealth countries to return to the task and replace Charles as their own head of state. It's true that I didn't hear many expressions of Republican view within the UK. There could be many reasons for that, not least that Republicans, including maybe even me, uh, have a certain respect for um, both the Queen as an individual, for the fact that she was a 96-year-old woman who continued doing to the best of her ability her duties to the end and respect for a family in grief and I'd have that respect for any family in grief and there are times when it is and times when it isn't appropriate. But you see a Republican would probably say look okay there's a genuine amount of grief here but what this also is a public relations effort on a massive scale to promote the royal family and that is supported by the government that sees the royal family as a way of, for example, keeping Scotland uh, within the United Kingdom. And the BBC on these occasions becomes, if you like, an aid to that policy of keeping the country united. And some Republicans would say that shouldn't be its job. Roger, you are becoming more and more conspiratorial. Can I take you back away? Three decades or more ago, I left the BBC on leave of absence for a year to do other stuff, and when I came, my job had disappeared, but I still had a salary to return to, and they asked me to find something to do. I discovered that the BBC's preparations for the death of the Queen back in 1985 were farcically inadequate. On radio, the plan was, and I quote, to play the Croydon Bell until further notice. Don't ask me what the Croydon Bell was. On television, there was a prepared, I think, hour-and-a-half-long film documentary, which in the mid-'80s was already several years out of date, but at least it was there, something to broadcast. But BBC Television News had no plan whatever... Well, well, hold on. This is 1980s, beginning of the 1980s. The Queen is 56. The shock if she'd have died would have been extraordinary. And the BBC had no plans, virtually no plans, is what you're saying. Had no plans for her, but more to the point, it had no plans for the Queen Mother, who was then, by definition, it being 1985, she was 85 years old, because, in the words of my... the opening words of the obituary I then wrote, she was as old as the century... So, as an 85-year-old, there were no plans for what to do when she died, and I spent best part of a year compiling a whole lot of plans for the BBC, including the first-ever rehearsal on television for the death of the monarch. I made provision for black ties, black jackets, and for female newsreaders, black dresses, to be always no more than a couple of minutes away from the studios. But when you pointed this out to people and said, look, there are no plans here, what are you doing? What did they say? Oh, we haven't got budget for that. I mean, it seems to me such an extraordinary omission, it's hardly believable. Uh, was it the case that, uh, well, it'd have to come out of somebody else's budget and therefore nobody had planned? What, what was the reason? No, no, it wasn't, it wasn't a money thing at all. It, it was simply that nobody had prioritised it. The BBC television service had its prepared documentary, but BBC News absolutely had no plan. Do you think, Richard, the BBC learnt also from the criticism it received over the scale of the coverage of the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, of course not that long ago, there was a lot of complaints that the BBC had overreacted, taking too many programmes off and so on. 
It didn't happen this time. Do you think that is because the Queen was the Queen? Or do you think that the BBC handled it rather better? Probably a bit of both. The truth is you cannot compare the significance of the death of the Duke of Edinburgh to the death of the monarch. Of course you can't. And I think, you know, for my personal taste, the BBC overdid it a bit this time. But if you had to err on one side or the other as the national broadcaster, I've no doubt they erred on the right side. And I think although there are many, many voices who are critical, there are damn sight more voices who may not express it publicly because praise is less easy to express sometimes than criticism. Uh, many, many more people who thought the BBC did the right thing. Of course, it mattered desperately to the Director General. I mean, can you imagine? He's there locked horns with a, uh, effectively an incoming Conservative government which thinks the licence should go, no friend particularly of the BBC. If the BBC had got this wrong, then it would have been very difficult. They must have been, however well prepared they are, I mean, they must have been holding their breath. Roger, honestly, you read politics into everything the BBC does, and often you're right. On this occasion, I think you're absolutely wrong. I told you, the plan has basically been the same at the BBC for handling the death of the monarch for at least 35 years through uh, various governments, Labour, Coalition and Tory. I remember saying back in 1985 when some of my colleagues were incredulous that we should spend money doing a full studio rehearsal with outside broadcasts and all the rest of it for the possible death of the Queen. I remember some colleagues saying that this was a ridiculous overkill and I remember saying to them, even then, the day the Queen dies, the BBC cannot overdo this story. And I was right, and even more so when she was 96 years old. Well, now it's back to work, if you like, and the BBC faces a very difficult situation. It's got the licence fee frozen. We've listened about other businesses having really problem with their fuel costs, even despite government intervention, of course. Broadcasting depends a great deal on fuel power and fuel and so on. The BBC has got uh, potentially a strike coming up in news. It tries to push forward some changes to reduce costs there. And somehow it has to persuade a new culture secretary who is very critical of the licence fee, that actually it's not as easy as she might think to get rid of it. And so presumably the Director-General is already, and the Chairman are already planning the arguments to persuade the Secretary of State that actually uh, don't junk the licence fee too early. Do you think that's what they are going to say? And what would be the arguments they will deploy? I think it would be very easy for the government to kill off the BBC, not by one stroke of the pen, but simply by very rapid attrition. And the BBC has been saying ever since I was a kid that it was strapped for cash. It is now visible. It is visible what's happening on screen, on radio and online. Look at the BBC News website, which I have been a passionate adherent to for the last 25 years or so. Weekends, it's barely updated. Look at the home screen on BBC News Online, sometimes at weekends, and most of the stories are 6, 8, 10, 12, 20 hours old. The absence of money is showing. Now, the fact that the BBC has done, I think, pretty well by most of the population over the last two weeks during the morning for the Queen, that gives them a bit of short-lived reprieve, but very short-lived 
We're seeing slow financial strangulation, aren't we? And then if you look what's coming up to the BBC, there's a, in terms of expensive things to do, there's a coronation coming up. They've got to host Eurovision instead of Ukraine. Uh, there is the continued war. Uh, people are not going to say to the BBC, would you please cut back your spending on the coverage of the war of Ukraine? You've got all of those issues. And a government that thinks, well, we don't want to get the odium of cutting services or whatever, so uh, we'll let the BBC do that. We just keep the financial pressure on, prepare eventually to get rid of the licence fee, and let the BBC become increasingly unpopular as it cuts things. And people then say, what are we paying for? It clearly wouldn't be a good time for even a right-wing government of the sort we have to declare its intention to get rid of the BBC. But memories of the last two or three weeks will fade pretty quickly in government and they'll fade also among the population as a whole. And the economic pressures on families mean that voters will be influenced by the argument about why should the BBC have £3 billion a year of what the government calls taxpayers' money, though not, of course, tax at a time of austerity. So the, the BBC is in a very, very vulnerable position. But I've been saying to you on and off on your programmes for many years that the, the people who will save the BBC or not are the voters, are the listeners, are the viewers. If they've given the chance. But I mean, one of the things that concerns me is this. Uh, when it comes to deciding to withdraw services, cut things, is there any evidence that the BBC will consult its audience about that or actually will decide what it needs to do for itself. I just wonder whether or not it's time for us to have a proper review of public service broadcasting, uh, which would include Channel 4, you know, which would argue, what do we actually want in terms of public service broadcasting? What does it mean now? How best to organise it? How best to pay for it? And we've got a brief period of time before 2027 to have that proper discussion in which the country can be consulted rather than something be stitched up by a BBC which has a Conservative Party chairman and a government which actually would like to see the end of the licence fee. In what way can the ordinary person have a say on this? I don't think it's through a review of public service broadcasting because reviews of public service broadcasting have to be run by somebody. Who would it be run by? It would be run by somebody appointed by the government. Who would that be? It would be a Lord Grade or some person who is in the Tory camp and who is looking for one or two years public appointment which is lucrative and which will come to some pretty foreseeable conclusions. I think the, the only power that audiences have is through the ballot box, through being willing to write to their MPs, express their views personally. Will the BBC consult on um, reductions in its services? Well, it probably should, because most public bodies should go through a consultation exercise before they make a final decision. But you and I know that most public consultations are foregone conclusions. They go through the form of consultation, but the decisions have already been taken in principle. And anyway, you and I also know, Roger, that anything the BBC decides to stop doing creates uproar. It doesn't matter how marginal it is as an activity, there will be sufficient people out there who are infuriated to campaign against it. The BBC is in an impossible position. There's nothing it does that is valueless. Thank God for that, but that means when it tries to stop doing it, the people who value it will make a fuss. Well, let's hope they do. Uh, finally, Richard, let's try and be optimistic. And there is still some wonderful output going around. Anything you can recommend to us on the BBC that you've listened to and you think should get more attention than it does? I don't tend to listen to light stuff on the right. radio or indeed on the television. <laughs> I don't have a lot of light in my life, actually. Um, but 
What I would recommend is that people who may have missed AmeriCast should give it a chance now that it has a new cast because, to be completely frank with you, I was a, a complete fan of the original Brexit cast. I thought it was brilliant in concept, brilliant in casting with its four original cast members. And I think AmeriCast in its first form never quite made the grade for me. And my old friend and a guy I like and respect a lot, John Sopel, was never as good, I think, on AmeriCast as he was as uh, the BBC's North America editor. And ditto Emily Makeless never did for me on AmeriCast what she did as presenter of the Newsnight. And I think the problem was they were mates and they'd been mates since almost childhood or their student days. And it was just too matey and, frankly, too much about their chemistry, such as it was. I think the relaunch now with uh, Justin Webb, former North America editor for the BBC, now on the Today programme, and Sarah Smith, former Scotland editor for the BBC and now North America editor, shows all the promise of being a really good bit of journalism again. Uh, unfortunately, last week was rather spoiled by the fact that neither of them was in, the, in America, and therefore <laughs> they were relying pretty much on what they'd read online, just like you and me. But it's a good programme. It's worth listening to again. So re-engage with AmeriCast. Thank you very much, Richard. I hope we can re-engage with you a little later on as well in these podcasts. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Roger. And that's it for my very first podcast. Let me know what you think and what we should do to improve it. I mean, do you want some plinky-plonky music? You can get in touch by sending an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeatwatch.com. You can get in touch on Twitter by using at Roger. And just so you know, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and produced by Kate Dixon. It was a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>